It truly is a privilege to be able to open up God's Word with you. So if you have your Bibles, please turn it to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be continuing on in this incredible series. Um, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, starts like this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him. And departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came up to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he said him, on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. We now ask that you would help us and that you would protect us as we work our way through this passage. For our good and your glory, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And thinking through how to talk through this passage, I thought the best way to do that is to start with a question. And my question to you this morning is, how do you view people? Would you see them as an inconvenience or would you view people as I'm actually being given an opportunity to serve them? Oh, maybe I could ask it this way. Um, Are people obstacles to fulfilling your God-given purpose or do people serve a central role in God's purposes for your life? You may be thinking, well, it kind of depends on how I wake up and what the what my schedule is. I mean, people are either I'm going to have time for them or I'm not going to have time for them. Or the way I physically feel, you know, if I'm not in pain and I can serve somebody, I will. And if it's too uncomfortable, I won't. Interesting and interestingly enough, in uh, Princeton University, two uh, psychologists decided to test the seminary students at Princeton to define good neighbors and bad neighbors and see what they discovered. And so what they did was they took the seminary class and split it in half. This side of the class was given the task um, to study the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what they were supposed to do is they were supposed to come back prepared to tell a panel of lecturers from Princeton University what the meaning of the parable of the Good Samaritan was. To further complicate that challenge, they gave a section of 
the students only about 30 minutes to prepare and gave the other students about a day and to come back the next day and to prepare and give their understanding to the board, uh, to the panel the following day. Then they took this side of the seminary class and they broke them up and asked them to address the rev- the relevance. Sorry, address the relevance, uh, the relevance of Christian ministry. I'll get it out. I'll get it out. To address the re- relevance of Christian ministry to daily life. And again, some were given extra time. Some were not given so much time. And so they too had to come back and address the um, lectures. Well, what they didn't know was that the psychologists had actually planted that every single student that was to come back was going to encounter a man in need. They strategically placed people so that each student would come across someone who was in need, actually crying out for help. How many do you, how many students do you think stopped? They had just been studying the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. They'd just been thinking through the relevance of Christian ministry and its effects. Unfortunately, not many stopped. And when they gathered the data of as the reason why, the main reason was we were in a hurry. We didn't want to be late for class. We wanted to be sure we were on time. For me, I think a lot of us might have that same sort of thinking. We can be in too much of a hurry to be good neighbors. I think what's hit me this past week as I have been studying this passage is that my view of people exposes or reveals that I have forgotten whose neighbor I am. I've forgotten that God is putting people in my path so that I can help them even when it may seem terribly inconvenient or uncomfortable or awkward. I have forgotten even the view of myself. It's quite high. My view of my neighbor and my life, all those views, myself, my life, my neighbor, others, it actually matters before the Lord. And I've also forgotten that neighborly love is a whole way of life. It's just not moments. It's actually a whole way of life, not just when I feel like it. So this morning, through this incredible story, we will see that mere talk of love is only that, just talk. But when we show our neighbors love, our actions, our affections confirm the story that we tell about Jesus and about his cross and about his resurrection. It is truly sobering. And so my prayer is that we'll really lean in and gain understanding of what our Savior is teaching us here. It's really practical, and yet it's evangelical. It's actually an explanation of the law, but also has a gospel design for its hearers. And so this morning, the title of this message, if you're taking notes, is Whose, W-H-O-S-E, Whose Neighbor Am I? With really two points. One is that the account is explained, and then very briefly, we're just going to talk about a take-home for this account, and it will be very brief. But we'll spend a majority of the time just working through this account and what it says. But I have this one hope, and that is that what the law demands... The gospel really produces in us. I'll say that again. What the law demands, the gospel really produces in us. Now, it is extremely important for me as one of your pastors that you would understand something. So I want to clarify it. And that is the law tells us what we ought to be. The object of the gospel is to raise us to that condition. 
So I wouldn't want you to hear me saying that holding up to love our neighbor is is a condition of salvation because it's not. That's wrong. But rather, loving our neighbor is a fruit of salvation. I wouldn't want you to hear me promoting that obedience to the law as the road to heaven because that's not the point of what Jesus is teaching here. However, there is a pathway that is to be followed by faith and it's evidenced in love. I trust this will all become clear as we continue to work through this account in Luke's gospel. So the context of this setting, if we remember, is, um, uh, and if you're catching up with us, is at the end of chapter 9 in Luke's gospel, people are saying to Jesus that I want to follow you, but they're coming up with excuses and reasons as to why they don't follow him. And then he talks about the cost of following him and that people don't do it because the cost is too great. But then at the beginning of chapter 10, which we saw last week, we heard that there are 72 people that are willing and ready to follow Jesus and do what he says. And so Jesus sends these 72 out in pairs and they are having a whale of a time. It is a great adventure. Uh, it's not easy, but it's an adventure. And as they come back from this adventure, they are telling Jesus, you wouldn't believe what we saw. And what I find so striking is that Jesus and his wisdom just says, hey, don't be excited about that, that you saw demons flee and things happen. Be excited that your name is written in heaven. That's what you want to be excited about. Your name is written in heaven. And then he goes on to, um, in the, at the end of that chapter, or sorry, at the end of that section, is he, Jesus is explaining to the disciples that they're blessed because they're actually getting to see They're actually getting to hear what prophets and kings desire to see and hear. They're actually seeing it with their own eyes and hearing it with their own ears. And now all of a sudden we pop into verse 25 and Luke is telling us, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, how does that all connect? Well, I think what Luke is trying to do is he's trying to explain what took place previously. You see, previously, Jesus was rejoicing over the way that the Father had hidden the secrets of salvation from people who who, who thought they were wise and, and revealed them instead to the people who had childlike faith. Here we have a lawyer, which means, i.e., a Brendan Willis, an expert in the law. We have a theologian. We have a biblical scholar. That's what you are, right, Brendan? A biblical scholar? A theologian? Um, but so this man in this story, that, or this account that we're seeing, is someone who knows his stuff. He knows the Torah. He's been reciting it. He's memorizing it. And so he um, even is seeking to apply it. But perhaps he's seeing but not seeing. He's hearing and not hearing, and that's what we're really going to understand through this account because of the way that he's, what he's doing. And, and the way that I support that is because look at the way Luke draws attention to the motivations of the lawyer. You know, he's saying, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Now, a lawyer, an expert in the law, knows very well in scripture because in deuteronomy 6 16 there's a warning that says not to put god to the test and here is this expert of the law putting jesus the son of man to the test 
He's also then looking for clarification regarding eternal life. He's saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, that is a great question because in the, um, in the wisdom literature in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity into our hearts. So in some ways, this, you know, expert of the law is asking good questions, but it's kind of this motivation. It's almost like, why is he doing this? The lawyer is kind of asking, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he's referring to eternal life as an inheritance, which is something that's granted or given to you. But on the other hand, he's also assuming that there was something that he could do to gain eternal life. His salvation would come by some good works. It's quite typical, really, guys, of Judaism. It was kind of like if we have made, you know, achieved our religious performance is acceptable, well, then our salvation is kind of tacked onto that. So folk made their salvation based on their religious performances. And here is a expert in the law kind of going, okay, well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Meaning some way, in some way that if there is a heaven, surely entry is gained by the good outweighing the bad. But this is not what Jesus is talking about. This is not what Jesus is teaching or what God teaches. Look what he does then to answer this um, expert in the law in his questions. He says to him, verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Experts in the law had been reciting uh, verses of, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, it's even kind of re- referred to in the New Testament, back into the Old Testament, about what was taught in the Torah. And Jesus is saying, you answer well. You actually answer this well. Do this, and you will have eternal life. And I guess it's worthy of pausing and kind of considering and teasing out what Jesus is saying. Because all the lawyer has to do, all the lawyer had to do from the day that he was born and conceived was to love the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength, and love his neighbor as himself perfectly, and he would inherit eternal life. When you think about that, how could anybody do that? I mean, the, keeping this, these commandments is easier said than done. And I think this is where the problem lies. The love that God requires, the perfect love that he is set out, is not just done once. It is done over and over all the time. It's supposed to be. And so to love him with everything is what is, we are being called to do. But we have a problem. Who can do that perfectly? Only a sinless son of God can do that. Only a sinless son of God can fulfill what is being taught. But does the expert of the law see and not see, hear and not hear? In Romans 3, 19 and 20, we have these beautiful verses that talk about the law and their purpose. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified by his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, we'll never be saved by keeping the law. We aren't going to be saved. Our salvation is not going to come on how well we love our neighbor. Not because there's anything wrong with the law of loving our neighbor, 
but because there's something wrong with us. We are truly the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And Jesus is wanting to help the expert in the law understand this. It is impossible to do this. You're asking me, how can you inherit eternal life? (laughs) It's impossible to do it on your own works. But this is what was taught, the law taught, to show us that we can't achieve it. However, the impossible is designed to drive sinners to seek a savior. What is impossible is designed to drive sinners to seek a savior. Now, what do you tend to do when you're met with the impossible? Do you um, think, ah, forget it, it's just too hard, I'm not going to even try or when you're still trying, you try again, do you kind of look for loopholes as to maybe how you can achieve it better the next time? Do you make excuses for yourself and just kind of lower the law? Law? Do you argue the details? What do you do when you're met with impossibilities? Perhaps you're one who cries out for grace and prays for mercy. Imagine if the expert of the law had done that. Imagine if the expert of the sto- uh, of the law hears what Jesus says and says, oh, help me, Lord. I'm not able to love the way that you demand I love. I can't do it. I've never loved anyone the way I love myself. Imagine a response of, tell me, Jesus, how a sinner like me can be saved. I could imagine Jesus then explaining that salvation comes through faith in Jesus. You see, you hear, you get it. But clearly what's being revealed is this expert of the law isn't getting it. Instead, in verse 29, we see that but desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Uh, if you picture the scene, um, you know, here is Jesus privately talking to his disciples. Maybe he's turned to them to talk, but there's obviously people around. And then this expert of the law stands up and inserts himself to ask this question. Jesus begins engaging with him. There's probably other people around this expert of the law who's, um, and, and this expert of the law is feeling a little bit embarrassed. Like his pants have been pulled down. He's kind of getting schooled by Jesus. And now... The lawyer's trying to save face and he's going to ask a question which really is trying to show off his intellectual or spiritual superiority. Jesus doesn't buy into it. He responds with the simplicity that even the youngest of scholars could understand at catechism. I feel for this expert of the law in some ways. Probably because I see myself in it. What the expert of the law is going, yes, yes, okay, you're calling me to love my neighbor as myself. Let me just clarify, who is my neighbor? Is that everybody? Really? Like, it's almost like he's trying to put parameters or guidelines or surely I don't have to hang out with them. And and what about them? And oh, oh gosh, I can't do them. Is there some, some, explain it. The question assumes that there's a category of people who are non-neighbors. Can you relate? Clearly, we can't love everyone perfectly. What happens is we want to justify ourselves before God. We want to be okay. And this is what happens. This is kind of the fruit of what happens when we're being dis- trying to be saved by our own works. 
rather than upholding the law and celebrating the goodness of the law and all of its perfections, we want to undermine it. We want to reduce it to be something that we can achieve so that we're okay. But this law is beautiful. And the one who gave this law recognizes our inability and he's saying it's impossible. But let me explain further. David Gooding wrote in his commentary on Luke, which I think supports this really well, this idea that I'm trying to present. And here's the quote up on the wall. Are we expected to treat every man Jack in the whole of the world as our neighbor and love him as ourselves? And if that is impossible, where are we to draw the line? And are we to treat outrageous sinners and vicious tyrants and blaspheming heretics as our neighbor and love them along with all others as ourselves? Or may we, with good common sense, take the commandment as meaning by neighbor, the people in our family, our street, the synagogue, or to stretch our fellow nationals, but no more. (laughs) Can we take also that our political and national enemies By being enemies have ceased to be our neighbors? Is there some way that we can get out of this? This is too hard. And the temptation we face is to lower that law. And yet Jesus upholds that law. Are you here this morning and saying, can't love everybody? No way. Got to draw the line somewhere. Look what Jesus does. Rather than kind of giving some theoretical definition to this expert of the law, he's just going to tell them a story. And I love stories. I don't know about you, but I love a good story. And while he tells this story for the lawyer, he's going to answer his questions, but it's going to be indirectly. And all the while, what Jesus is wanting to do is lead this expert in the law to help him see and to help him hear. He's got to think outside of his usual categories. Jesus' kingdom that he's ushering in is upside down. It's not what we think. And he's going to show him who his neighbor is. And another thing that I think Jesus does as he explains this parable is he's actually helping him reframe his question. Because he's asking, asking, who is my neighbor? But instead, I think what we're supposed to be looking at is whose, H-O-S-E, neighbor am I? Who belongs to me? Who am I supposed to associate with? And so here we have, in verses 30 to 35, this incredible story. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. Think about this. Stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him pass by on the other side. But it was a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And gave them the innkeeper, gave him to an innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever you spend, I will repay you when I return. It's quite incredible to me that um, we see two religious leaders that Jesus is using as illustrations in this story. Fine, upstanding citizens, but they don't help in the story. 
You would be expecting the, the Levite and the priest to be people who are going to help this man that is kind of smashed out along the Jericho on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us why they failed to help. It doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, is there any ever, is there ever an excuse for not helping a man whose life is on the line? These men had a righteous responsibility to stop and help, but they didn't. I wonder if um, you think about this just practically for us today. If you were going over to a friend's house that had some kids, and one of the kids came up to you and said, you know, Auntie Celia, how, what's a bad neighbor? Or Uncle Nick, what's a bad neighbor? How would you, how would you explain what a bad neighbor is? Well, let me point you to what a bad neighbor is here in this account. You got two religious leaders who had a righteous responsibility and they don't help. I think we can draw from the poor example of these religious leaders of what bad neighbors are. Because what they're doing is they're avoiding an obvious need. Do you avoid obvious needs? There was a need. There was a man on the floor, on the road. Now, yes, there could have been all sorts of reasons why the priests and Levites were, you know, as we said, Jesus didn't kind of give any details. And yes, there were laws for the priests and, you know, and, and, and probably the priest had been away from home for a month or two and serving in the temple and he just wanted to get home and to see a man. I mean, you know, I don't have time to do that. I want to get home to my family. I'm tired. There's all sorts of excuses that could come up, but there is an obvious need right there. And friends, too, flimsy excuses for refusing to get involved with someone who has a legitimate claim on your love. How are we going to, how, how, how are we going to change in that? There are people that are being put in our paths that have legitimate claims for love on our, our love. Are we going to give it flimsy excuses? I want to ask you a question. Do you have a concern, Sovereign Grace members, for people who are sick and dying, physically and spiritually? Because, you know, here we see these two religious leaders. They're showing little concern for the wounded and dying. They're refusing to stop and help. And it could be that they're being just too selfish to interrupt what they're doing, to be inconvenienced by someone else's problems. It's happened to me. I do the same thing. I've done it. And it seems to me to kind of wrap up and define what a bad neighbor is. It's someone who refuses to be a good neighbor to someone in need. But just to support this, you know, um, these excuses that potentially religious leaders that gave here on this account. And C.H. Spurgeon's sermon that he gave to his church. Man, my temptation this morning was to bring C.H. Spurgeon's message to you and just read it to you because it's great. But I I didn't do that. But when C.H. Spurgeon preached this message, he imagined some of the excuses that these men might have had for their shocking sin of omission. As he was considering the possibilities and running them through with his church. He noticed members of his congregation smiling at their absurdity. And then he challenged them to see the absurdity of their own failure to love their neighbor. Here's a quote on the wall. He wrote this, or he said this. I shall leave you to make all the excuses that you like about not helping the poor and aiding the hospitals. And when you've made them, they will be as good as those which I've set before you. 
You've smiled over what the priest might have said. But if you make any excuses for yourselves whenever real need comes before you, and if you're able to relieve it, you need not smile over your excuses. The devil will do that. You'd better cry over them. For there is the gravest reason for lamenting that your heart is hard toward your fellow creatures when they are sick, and perhaps sick unto death. The kind of neighbor that we are matters to the Lord. Have you, like me, forgotten whose neighbor you are? It matters. It truly matters so much. And so Jesus doesn't just leave this example of the two bad neighbors. He goes on to show us what a good neighbor is by bringing a hero into the story that nobody would have expected. He brings a Samaritan into the picture as the hero. A Samaritan would be the last person in Israel that anyone would expect to stop and help someone. Brenda did a brilliant job a few weeks ago explaining the tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. And John even tells us in the Gospel of John that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So here is this story that Jesus is presenting and he's picking political problems, religious problems... Uh, socioeconomic problems potentially, but he's highlighting there is tension. And we're still called to love people who are different than us, who think differently than us. He picks a Samaritan. Samaritans were seen as heretics by some of the religious Jews. They thought so bad of them that they thought you should go around and push Samaritans into the ditch and just leave them. Like, oh, that'd be kind of fun. I guess we push people around if we want. <laughs> that, I mean, but they refused to. Re- and, and then, then um, you know, Jesus is understanding, too, that when he was on his way to Jerusalem, the Samaritans refused to receive Jesus. I mean, Jesus knows of this tension. And this story is all helping us understand whose neighbor we are. And yet to help bring understanding for the expert in the law. Uh, uh, the expert in the law, Jesus brings race and religion in. He doesn't lower the law, but upholds the law to love his neighbor. I was trying to think through what would it kind of be like for us today? What is a modern equivalent of a Samaritan and a Jew type of situation? What's that tension like potentially? And I'd like to submit this comparison to you. It would be like a fundamentalist Islam Islamic fundamentalist helping an evangelical Christian who was injured in a terrorist attack. Imagine that type of tension. They're not neighbors. They're enemies. It's the last thing that anyone would expect of an Islamic fundamentalist helping an evangelical Christian who had just been injured in a terrorist attack. You see, what we learn is a good neighbor is looking at what the good Samaritan did. Samaritan stopped and helped. Samaritan used what he had. And so we're going to continue to look at what this good Samaritan did. Because we'll notice that what he did was he noticed that there was a dying man in need. How many times have we walked along the road and seen a need and just overlooked it? A good neighbor is someone who uh, looks and sees what is uh, what they're able to do. They got their head up. While we've been in COVID, we've probably been very much looking inward, not looking outward, caring about other people's needs, maybe. But um, if, if we're going to be good neighbors, we need to look out and see what needs are available. We are, this good Samaritan had compassion. 
You know, this Greek word that um, Luke has used, this Greek meaning is having strong feelings of pity and tenderness. Um, uh, when Jesus was on his way to Nain, I believe it was, he saw a widow whose son had died and this, he had great compassion and he went and, you know, rose this boy back to life, but he had strong feelings of pity and tenderness. That is a sign of a good neighbor. Do you have strong feelings of pity and tenderness for others? But we need more than just, uh, you know, strong feelings and emotions. Uh, we need more than that. To be a good neighbor requires practical deeds of mercy. It requires us stopping. It requires us helping. It requires us giving of ourselves even when it is inconvenient. I want you to consider how this man on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, the Samaritan man, even he interrupted his journey. We can look at the Levite and the priest. I mean, they've obviously got a mission. But so does the Samaritan. And he stops and uses his resources and pours wine and oil on his neighbor's wounds. That's a good neighbor. A good neighbor refuses to draw artificial boundaries in order to avoid getting involved. I mean, the guy went and got two denarii and he took it out. That's like a month's wage and gave it to the innkeeper and says, hey, if you spend more, I've got it. I'll cover it. But has drawn no boundaries on his limits of how he's going to help someone. That's a sign of a good neighbor. And finally, a good neighbor makes a costly sacrifice of time and money to serve people in trouble. You know, Sovereign Grace, there are so many of us in that, and so many of you that I think do this so well. This is not a rebuke. This is not meant to be a correction. This is meant to be an encouragement and to fanning into flame holiness. As we continue to stare at the gospel, the fruits of good neighbor will come out. But I think it's good to remember and not forget. It's good to hear and, you know, and hear and see and see. This is what God is calling us to. A good neighbor is someone who loves others as he loves himself. There's this beautiful illustration in a book. Um, it's by a guy, uh, a guy is by the name of Ernest Gordon. Ernest Gordon, he's a bit of a hero, I think. I'd like to read more about him. But he was a British army officer that was captured in the infamous Japanese prison camp in the River Quay late in the war. Gordon and other prisoners of war traveled through the jungles in Asia that happened upon a train full of wounded Japanese soldiers nearly dying of neglect. And out of love for Christ, Gordon and many of his fellow officers began to administer aid to these soldiers. These guys were their enemies. One of the fellow officers was deeply offended. What bloody fools you are, he said. Don't you realize they're the enemy? And of course they did realize it. It was exactly the point. And as Gordon tried to explain on the wall, you'll see this. This is what Gordon replied to the officer. Have you never heard the story of the man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho? I asked him. He gave me a blank look, so I continued. He was attacked by thugs, stripped of everything and left to die. Along came a priest. He passed by them. Then came a lawyer, a man of high principles, and he passed by as well. Next came a Samaritan, a half-caste, a heretic, an enemy. But he didn't pass by. He stopped. His heart was full of compassion. And kneeling down, he poured some wine through the unconscious lips, cleaned and dressed the helpless man's wound, and took him to an inn where he had him cared for at his own expense. But that's different, the officer protested. That's in the Bible. These are swine who've starved us and beaten us. They've murdered our comrades. These are our enemies. Gordon responded by saying, Who is mine enemy? 
Isn't he my neighbor? Mine enemy is my neighbor. Oh, church, the law truly is confronting, is it not? It demands a lot. Yet the gospel then truly does bring out an ability to obey and to follow and trust God's laws. But here's the thing. We could be tempted to try to will ourselves to do better. Right, we're going to do better. Oh, how we need help. How ought we to respond? Well, here's my take home for you. It was about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was coming from the doctor's office to the carport, walking to the carport. And as I was walking, um, there was a man that's probably from me to Jeff away. <clears throat> I caught sight of him because he had the big dark glasses on and he had a big long stick with the tennis ball at the end. And he was literally walking like this. And I watched him get to the corner where he was going to cross the street. And he, you know, bumped into the pole, held the pole, pushed the button, waited for it to pass. Now I'm watching all of this. Waited for it to cross, you know. And then he, the buzzard went, so he's, you know, beep, beep, beep. So he's, and then he gets to the curb and he, like, bumbles over the curb. And I'm just sitting there like, you know, and I'm, I'm standing frozen. Don't do anything. He then turns the corner and he's walking, trying to feel his way around and he gets to a tree and bumps into a tree and I'm like, and I'm across the street, like watching him doing nothing. People are passing by. Then I watched him after he bumps into the tree, he's got groceries on his bag and he's feeling in his bag. He has no eyes to see, but he's feeling. And then I'm thinking, go help him, Patrick, like go help him. I stood there and I stared and then I thought I gotta go and then my thought was he doesn't he's gonna feel so uncomfortable me going over there like ah you know and other people were passing him and and well they weren't helping him so I don't need to help him and I come and read the parable of the good Samaritan whose neighbor am I and so my challenge to you this morning my dear friends church family that I love. As Dave said last week, coming out of COVID, I think the Savior is trying to grab our face and show us this is what you're about. Love your neighbor. I'm going to put people in your path and you're going to get to help them. And when you help them, you're going to be able to show them the love I showed you. You knew you were on that path. Dead in your trespasses and sins. I risk my life so that you might have life. Tell them the story of why you can help. Because you were helped by a Savior who loves you, died for you, and wants you to go and do likewise. Read these last couple of verses with me. Which of these three... Do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. Oh, man, would it be, church, that we are men and women who show mercy? Go and do likewise. We're getting to come back together.
going to get to be out and see people who are hurting, needy. We have, you know, like Brendan said earlier, we have a, 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 the place that he's placed us. Need Jesus. We're so rich. And we have a big community that's poor, spiritually poor. And we have the words of eternal life. So friends, go. Go and do likewise. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, what the law demands, the gospel enables us to do. And would we be amazed by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came in the form of a servant, humbling himself by becoming man and being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we could have our names written in heaven. How scandalous, how marvelous. So Lord, would it be that we as a church look past the Samaritan and see a greater Samaritan who gave his life for us so that we could go and tell of the rescuing and saving power that is available. Lord, use us as a church to be men and women of mercy, to slow down, to stop, and to see. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.